Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, if you would, bring your, open your Bibles to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4. We'll be reading, starting at verse 8, in through the first verse of the fifth chapter. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's word. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city, you shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now also many nations have gathered against you, who say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel. For he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord, and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Amen. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. O Father, as we think of the hope that is ours in your Son, Jesus Christ, we are led to rejoice, even if we must suffer now in this life. Lord, we pray that you would help us to go through this life well in light of what is coming for us, that we would have our eyes fixed on heaven, and that even as we read here of hope which comes after suffering, we pray, O Lord, that you would give us eyes to see beyond this life into the things of eternity and that we would be enabled by your Spirit to live lives that are worthy of your gospel, by which we have been called. We ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, many in this world face persecutions, many Christians. It has been going on for a long time. Ever since Cain killed Abel in the garden, there have always been unbelievers who have pursued those who call upon the name of God. It's, it happened even at the beginning of the Christian church. We read of many persecutions that happened in the book of Acts and then all throughout church history. Immediately after the history which is closing in the book of Acts and the, the beginning of the second century, we have a number of very notable uh, church uh, fathers who were put to death. Think of Ignatius, Polycarp, men who uh, were seen to be very important in the building of the church as it was growing in its infancy. Throughout the coming centuries, there would be a number of persecutions at the hands of Roman emperors or governors. 
And we see that even then, as it continued all the way into the time of the Reformation, as those who sought to reform the church were often at the risk of their own lives. And we see it happening even in our own day. There are many places in this world where people face very difficult situations. We think perhaps of areas like North Korea or China, where Christians are openly persecuted. And even in our own day, it's something that is growing more and more. Now, this is something that, as I said, has been happening from the beginning. It's happened constantly. You know, we say intermittently that God has given peace to his church, but there has always been persecution of the people of God from the beginning all the way until the present. And so one question that would be natural to ask is, will the church always be in distress from persecutors? Will it always be a reality that the people of God are pursued? Will there be a day when all the enemies of God's people are gone? One of the things that we see that's consistently prophesied in in the prophets and taught is that salvation for the people of God is the forgiveness of sins, but it's also, more than that, it is also the deliverance from all enemies. That the Lord Jesus Christ, as our priest, came to make an atonement for sins by which we've been cleansed from our sins, But as our king, he reigns over us and defeats all of our enemies. He keeps us secure in his sovereign hand. And so what we see here as Micah continues to speak of the glory of Zion, you remember where we've been looking at in chapter four, that there will be coming, there's coming a day when Zion will be lifted up above the nations. It'll be glorious. All the nations will come in. It'll be a time when God gathers even the lame, the outcasts, those who have been physically hindered by the exile. They will become gathering in. They will, they will rejoice in the salvation of God. And here, here we see that there is coming a time when the kingship that was lost in the exile, it will be restored. And when that happens, that will be the time when God delivers his people from all of their enemies. This is where we ended last week, as we, you may have noticed that I read beginning in verse 8, which was a verse that we actually touched on last week. And in that particular verse, which is part of Micah speaking of the, the lame and the outcasts, those who've been afflicted coming back in, he prophesies that there is coming a time when the former dominion, the kingship which the people of God formerly had, that when it will be restored. And now in this passage, beginning in verse 9, going through the beginning of chapter 5, and even really into chapter 5, Micah gives a picture of what it will be like for the people of God as they wait for the restoration of this former dominion, as they wait for the kingship to be brought back to the people of God. Now, the way this passage is structured is there are three parallel uh, stanzas, you could call them, which all begin with the word now. So the first one's in verse 9, you can see, and then verse 11. And at the beginning of the last one is in chapter 5, verse 1. And in each of these, Micah begins with looking at the exile, the punishment that was coming upon God's people, and then he always ends it with deliverance. So he's teaching God's people what it's what it's like uh, to wait for the salvation that is coming. There will be a time when God's people are humbled for their sins, but it will be followed up by a salvation, which ultimately 
uh, culminates in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll look at this passage under two headings as we consider the way that God will deliver his church from all of our enemies. We'll look at it very simply just in terms of exile and restoration, that the church is temporarily given over to her enemies, and yet there is coming a day when she will be delivered from all her enemies, and all of God's people will dwell secure under the reign of her coming king. So let's consider now the first part of each of these of each of these uh, parallel sections where Micah describes the people of God being given over to her enemies as she is waiting for the return of the kingship. Now this is done in a couple of ways. In the first stanza in verses 9 and 10, Micah is using the imagery of the exile to Babylon, which was still future for him. Uh, was something that ended up happening in the early 6th century BC. And then in verses 11 and 12, the figure is primarily with regard to Assyria. The, the people of, of, uh, of God, in, particularly in the northern part of, of Israel, the northern kingdom, they were oppressed by the Assyrians. And so Micah uses the imagery of the, the, the uh, group that was um, sent into exile from the south, in the beginning, and then also from the north. And the idea is that Micah is using these images to paint a picture of hope and salvation for all of God's people. Whether you lived in the north and were oppressed by the Assyrians, whether you lived in the south and would eventually go into exile into Babylon, yet God will deliver his people when he sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and restores the former dominion, which would be lost with the exile. So notice in verses 9 and 10, the figure of exile to Babylon is used for for this idea of the church being given over to her enemies. You'll notice that Micah begins here in verse 9 by asking a couple of rhetorical questions. Now, why do you cry aloud? Now, this is, you know, in the context, remember, in verse 8, there's this promise of coming restoration, and yet now... Now there is this cry. Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? That is to say, there seems to be some sort of connection between the counselor being in the presence of God's people, the king being in the presence of God's people, and them being safe. And now he's asking, look, you you are in this sort of distress, but isn't there a king to save you? Isn't there a counselor who is here to help you out of this situation? Why is it that you're crying aloud? Is it that your king has perished? And of course, this would be the case. This is what was was promised in in, uh, verse 8. There is coming a restoration of the kingship, which implies that it will, in fact, be lost. And because there is no king, that's the point of the rhetorical questions, because there is no king, you will writhe and you will be in pain as a woman in labor. The good of the people of God is always dependent upon them having a godly and righteous king leading them. And so long as they do not have this king, they cannot dwell securely. That's the, that's the flow of thought that Micah is giving to us here. If there is no king, if there is no counselor, God's people cannot thrive. If you remember back to the time of the judges, this was exactly the theology, I think, that the, that the book of Judges is setting forth. What's, what's the point? If you read the, the book of Judges, it can be very depressing. You know, the, God's people fall into sin. God raises up a judge. He delivers the people. God's people fall into sin again. But what's really, what's really the point? What's going on? 
Well, you'll know, if you know the book of Judges at all, that at the end of the book, there are uh, there is this phrase that's repeated over and over again. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But if you think back to that phrase, there's a couple of times where there is another phrase that comes immediately before that phrase. And it's this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The purpose of the book of Judges is to show that so long as there is no king in the land who is righteous, there will always be a situation where God's people will do whatever is right in their own eyes. And when they do that, they will suffer punishment and discipline from the hand of God as a result of their sins. There is an absolute necessity for the people of God to have a particular king over them. And this is what was promised to them there would be this coming king of David. But while they wait, as we see in verse 10, there is much suffering. Notice the language that Micah uses to describe this in verse 10. It's as I mentioned before, as a woman who is in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. Now, Zion in the scriptures is very often, uh, very often, there's this, this figure of a woman and a, a mother that's used to describe Zion. And in the exile, she as a mother was bereaved of her children. And now it is like she is in these pains of childbirth as she awaits the coming salvation. Now, one thing about the pains of childbirth is they are very, very painful. They are uh, something that causes a great deal of suffering to those who undergo them. But it's not suffering without hope. And that's, I think, what Micah is is showing to the people of God. There is a labor and a pain, even a writhing, that the people of God suffer as they wait for this coming king. But it is a labor in which Zion is laboring to bring forth children. It's not a labor where there is no hope. And so... As Micah continues to describe what is coming for the people of God, he now casts aside the metaphors and just speaks very clearly for us in the middle of verse 10. We're meant to see that this is not a suffering that is endless. It's a suffering that has a particular end. And he says this, describing the exile, For now you shall go forth from the city, that's from Jerusalem, you shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There is a threat of an exile. And why is this? Why were the people of God to be sent into exile? It was because of their sin. It was because of their sin. It was a discipline that God was sending upon the people for turning away from from the Lord constantly. He had sent them prophet after prophet, hundreds and hundreds of years Even close to a thousand years, he had been gracious to this people, restored them many, many times. Think of in the book of Judges, for hundreds of years, he would put up with them, be patient with them, send them judge after judge. Then after the kingdom came, the people continued to fall into sin. He would continually raise up prophets who would speak to the people, and they constantly turned away until eventually they went into exile. But notice here, it is not... It is not as if God is fully casting off his people. As we will consider in just a moment, God will restore his people. When God brings enemies against the church to discipline the church, it is for 
their good, even if it can be very, very painful, as it surely was for the people in that day. There may be suffering to be had in this life, but all the sufferings that we endure at the hands of God are really a pruning. It is like we are a vine. The Lord is the vine dresser. He prunes us so that we may bear fruit. It is a preparation for a greater salvation. It is a leading of God's people to repentance. And so if you're here tonight and you feel like you are under the Lord's discipline, perhaps even because of your sins, this is a great passage to encourage you to repent of your sins, that you might experience the full restoration. God deals with us harshly sometimes, it seems to us, for our good that he might lead us to repentance. And notice then the other figure that's used in verses 11 and 12. You'll notice that it is um, a different figure that Micah is using. He's not speaking of the same event. We know that because in in verse 10, there is um, an explicit statement that the people of God are going off into Babylon. But here, the people aren't leaving a city. They are rather surrounded while they're in a city. And they're surrounded by many nations. Notice what it says in verse 11. Now also many nations have gathered against you who say, let her be defiled and let our eye come look upon Zion. So it's a a different situation. It's not the situation of God's people going off into exile, but rather all of the nations gathering around the people of God in order to destroy them and gathering particularly around Jerusalem. So what's the, the historical situation that Micah is referring to? Well, I think it's pretty clear that this is referring to, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the attack of Assyria upon the northern kingdom. Not just upon the northern kingdom. When the Assyrians came against the northern kingdom, they did destroy the northern kingdom. They, They sent them off into exile. But then, about a generation later, the Assyrians returned. And they conquered even a good bit of the southern kingdom. And they got so far that they actually besieged Jerusalem itself. They surrounded the city and they called upon the people of God to give up. And they said things like, you know, who is the God who can deliver you out of our hand? We've destroyed all the other peoples of all the other nations. And who is your God that he can stand against us? And this is during the days of Hezekiah, which was a time that Micah himself lived through. If you remember the story of what happened, Hezekiah being a very godly king, prays to the Lord for deliverance. The prophet Isaiah brings a message to him that God will, in fact, grant them deliverance. And then in one day, this is one of the most uh, amazing deliverances that is in the Old Testament. Sometimes we can forget it in the midst of all the other great things that the Lord has done. In one day, the Lord sent the angel of the Lord who destroyed 185,000 people. And the people of God in Jerusalem, they, they woke up and all of a sudden... They're no longer besieged. The enemy is just gone. God destroyed them and he delivered them out of their hands. Now, in both of these usages of this figure of going into exile to Babylon and in being delivered from the Assyrians, Micah is using something that's historical in order to paint a picture of something that's greater, that's coming. When the Messiah comes, it will be like return from exile. It will be like the destruction of all of God's enemies. Now notice the way that they themselves are described in verse 12, the Assyrians. 
It says, But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel. For he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. That is to say, the Assyrians in that day, they were coming against the people of God, very confident that they were going to destroy them. Yet they did not realize that everything that they did was really in fulfillment of what the Lord himself had planned. They didn't know it. They didn't think that that was what was happening. But the Lord makes it very, very clear over and over again in in the prophets that this was, in fact, the case. In the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 10, this same, uh, this same event is, is described in, in some detail. In term, in, in actually, Isaiah is prophesying about it. It's before it actually happened. And the armies of Assyria are described in the same way. They've got no idea what's happening. They think that it's because of their great might that they are coming against this people. But Isaiah makes it clear to the people of God, it's not actually because of their might. It's because God is disciplining you. It's because you've sinned against the Lord and he is using them to discipline you. And there's this wonderful metaphor that Isaiah uses as the people of Assyria boast over Jehovah. He says it's like an axe boasting over him who wields it. The Assyrians are nothing but an axe in the hand of the Lord. God is wielding the axe. He uses them as he so pleases. And it even says there that when he's done with them, he'll simply discard them. He, when, he, when he finishes the work that he is doing on his people with the Assyrians as his instrument, he will simply discard them, having accomplished the work which he has done for his people. And that's what is being described here as well. The, the, the enemies of God may come against God's people. They may even cause a lot of suffering for God's people. But there is nothing that can happen to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that will not be turned to, the, to their good. All of the suffering that they endure at the hands of their enemies, God uses for their good. And when he is done with that particular work, he will get rid of all of our enemies. This is what happens constantly throughout the scriptures. Think of the story of Joseph. Joseph sold into slavery from his brothers. He is accused of something, uh, of a sin that he did not commit, is forgotten and left into prison. All of these things, you think, where is God? And at the end of the book of Genesis, it says, concerning his brothers, you may have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The same was true with the Assyrians. Or think even after that, in Isaiah chapters 44 and 45, you have Cyrus, who does not know the plans of the Lord. God names him by name hundreds of years before he's born and says, it'll be this man whom I use to bring back my people from exile. And the greatest example is the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Israelites persecuted, whom the Pharisees sought to put to death over and over again. And all of their words, all of their actions were used by the Lord for the salvation of all of his people. There is ultimately, even as the people of God wait for this coming salvation, there is no enemy that can come against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ without God turning it for their particular good. And so this is the way Micah describes the exile or the church being handed over to their enemies while they wait for the coming salvation. There is a suffering that will happen that will take place as they wait for this coming salvation. But it is not a suffering that is hopeless. 
They wait for a deliverance that is sure to come, and even while they suffer, God turns all of their suffering into good. This ought to be a great encouragement to you to bear the sufferings in this life well. Whatever happens to you in this life, God will use it for your good as you wait for the coming salvation. As we've said many, many times each of the last three weeks, there is a sense in which this salvation has come for us, and there is a sense in which we continue to wait. As we wait, we are in the same position as the people of God in the 8th century BC, whom Micah is prophesying to. There is a suffering, and yet there is a deliverance. And so Micah, as I mentioned, goes back and forth between exile restoration. And so we'll consider now the restoration as the church is delivered from all of her enemies. The section on restoration is actually uh, quite small in this first stanza. As we look back to verse 10, as we see the, the, the restoration from Babylon that is mentioned. You'll notice the beginning, again, at the beginning of, sorry, in the middle of verse 10, it says, For now you shall go forth from the city, from Jerusalem, you shall dwell in the field and go to Babylon. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now there is quite an, an emphasis here on the location of Babylon itself. It's there said twice, put at the beginning of the sentence for emphasis, there you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of all of his enemies. There is a redemption to take place, but know for certain that when the redemption happens, it will happen while you are in Babylon. That is to say that as you wait for the redemption of the Lord, there is no way in this life to avoid suffering. We, in some sense, are in Babylon. There's a sense in which we're not as the Lord Jesus Christ has come, but yet we still do suffer and wait for the Lord's coming. And it's only as we are in that particular place that we will be delivered. There is no way to avoid suffering in this life. I think that's the point. You must go to Babylon and be delivered from there. There's no. There's simply no other way that it can happen. You will certainly be saved, but it is after a life of suffering. This is one thing that we see that's very consistently taught throughout all of the scriptures, that there is an exaltation that always follows humiliation. It's always in that order. There is the descent into the grave, and there is the coming up out of the grave in life. Life following death, restoration following exile. It's the pattern of any number of examples, We even the ones that we've mentioned. Joseph, there's the, the downward trend, then there's the up. David, in his life, you think of all of the persecutions he suffered before he became the king. You think of the Lord Jesus Christ as the preeminent example, who was the eternal Son of God, and yet became a man for us, and humbled himself, and even... Uh, endured all the sufferings of this life, the trials of this life, and even death itself. There was a a downward movement that preceded the upward exaltation. And such it is for all of those who truly follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in Babylon that we'll be delivered. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said, we must take up our cross and follow him. We must follow him in his 
life of suffering. There's no way to short-circuit that pattern. It is the down before the up. Notice as well that it says that it is there that Jehovah will redeem you. And here the emphasis again is on the sovereignty of God. It is only God who saves. That's something that Micah has been very clear to point out in every single situation where the hope of God's people has been put forward. It's always been that God himself will do the act of saving his people. There is salvation in no one else. You cannot save yourself. It is only the Lord Jesus Christ who has the power to raise the dead, and it's only those who look to him who will participate in that life after death. But notice here as well, as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon as in the introduction, that when Micah describes redemption here, it's not redemption so much from sin, so of course that's true. It's, it's redemption in terms of deliverance from all of our enemies. There will be, there the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And again, this is particularly is an emphasis of Christ's work as our king. Whenever we see uh, deliverance from enemies, there is this focus on Christ's kingship, which our catechism picks up on very well. Christ is our king, subdues us to himself. He rules us and he delivers us from all of his and our enemies. The greatest enemy being death itself and Satan, whom he treads uh, the head of. This was even the very first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15 has this same emphasis. He will crush the head of the serpent. It's a promise of Christ's coming as a king to defeat enemies on our behalf. And this is a great comfort to us as you think of the persecutions that the church must go through. And even as in our own culture, there appears to be growing opposition to Christians uh, in, in our particular uh, area and in our, in, in our lives. There is coming a day when the people of God will be fully vindicated in the sight of all, and all of those who oppose the church will be put to shame. All of them will be destroyed, and the people of God will have none to make them afraid. You ever meditate on this aspect of your salvation, that there will be none to make you afraid. You will never have to look over your shoulder. There will be simply no enemy. It's a picture of Oh, it ought to be a, a picture of great comfort to you, even as you suffer, that this is what is coming for you. And so this is how Micah describes restoration from Babylon, which is coming back from the exile proper. Notice the way that Micah describes the salvation from the Assyrians. As I've mentioned, we've I've given an overview of that historical situation and what the Lord did to, to save them. Now notice the way that verse 13 is described is a bit different from what historically actually happened, which I think shows again what I've been saying, that Micah is using the situation of Babylon and Assyria to paint a picture of a, of a greater salvation. Uh, it doesn't say that when this happens and the angel of the Lord will come and destroy all the enemies. It actually focuses on Zion's uh, role in all of this. Notice in verse 13, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of all the earth. So remember with this 
this picture of the, the, the distressful situation under the Assyrians that Micah has described. All the nations gather around Jerusalem. They surround her and they, they believe that they will look and triumph over her as they destroy her. And Micah said, you know, they don't understand the things of God. They don't understand that, that God has, has really used them as part of his own plans. And when he delivers them, delivers the people of God from their hand, here it's described that he will make Zion to be very strong. It's a, a picture of a bull. Zion's likened to a bull here that has horns of iron and hooves of bronze, and she tramples over all of the peoples and completely destroys them. Now, as you think about this, this metaphor that Micah is using, it can be difficult to think of how to apply this. Is there ever going to be a time when the church will take up the sword against her enemies? You, you know, it, that, that sort of thing was done more in the Old Testament and was done righteously. But is there a sense in which the church bears the sword now? Well, we don't bear the sword now. That's one thing that the Lord Jesus Christ makes clear. Now, if that's the case, then what is this referring to? What is it, what is it that we will do? Well, we have to remember, again, that we don't bear the sword now, and we have to keep in mind what the current task that has been given to the church actually is. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he left, gave the instructions to the church that we are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The, what we were told to do, for instance, in 1 Peter, is to submit to the emperor. Submit to the Roman emperor was the, was the direction given to the church. Do not rise up against them, but submit. And to follow the example of Christ, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. And therefore gave an example that we are to follow in, in all of the days of our lives. So that's the current situation for the church. However, there is coming a time in the last day when all of those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ will actually participate in the judgment that will be poured out upon the unbelievers in the last day. There is, in some sense, a battle to be fought in that regard. We're not given a, a ton of details into what that will look like, but there is coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will appear with all of his angels. There will be a battle to be fought, and God's people will win it. There will be a time when God's people are fully and finally delivered from all of their enemies. And so even though here we're not being encouraged to take up the sword ourselves now, it's still, it still ought to give you great comfort that there is a victory that's coming and we don't need to bear the sword now. God will preserve us as we wait the day of his coming. And on that last day, we will be victorious. Now notice Notice as well the last thing that's said about this, about this final deliverance in verse 13. It says, I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of all the earth. Though the church is the one who wins the victory, there's no confusion about where the victory comes from. It comes from the Lord. Zion did not make her horns to be iron and her hooves to be bronze. It was the Lord who did that. And because of that, there is a recognition that 
whatever wealth is gained through the conquest of all enemies, that it really does belong to the Lord. And all will recognize on that day that the victory belongs to the Lord. It's very similar to what happened in the days of Joshua, where the people of God were to actually pick up the sword, and they were to go into the promised land, and they were to take it. What, what were they to do with all the things that they, that they received? It was to be fully devoted to the Lord. All of it was to be destroyed by fire in that regard. It's a sign that it was all to pass on to the Lord. They were to retain none of it for themselves, recognizing that it was the Lord himself who fought for them in that particular case. The victory belongs to God. Everything is offered to him. And one of the things that means for us in our lives is that all of us who are living after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is that our entire lives ought to be devoted to God. Is not the same principle true for us? Who has won the victory over sin and death and Satan? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. We participate in that victory, but we did not win the victory. And all of the glory and the tribute goes to the one who actually won the victory. This is why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, after he finishes 11 glorious chapters of describing the grace that we have in the salvation in that we, which we have in Christ, says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you in view of the mercies of God to present your entire bodies to God as a living and spiritual sacrifice. In light of what God has done for you in saving you from your sins, the only reasonable thing is that you would devote your entire being to God. So this is the picture that Micah gives of salvation. Here he's, he's not just dealing solely with the coming glory of Zion like he did in chapter 4 verses 1 to 5. He's giving the picture of hope for the people of God as they are in their current situation, as they are suffering, waiting for this coming restoration. And we have here this very clear pattern, which you see all throughout the scriptures. There is exile, and then there's restoration. There is humiliation, and then there's exaltation. There is death, and then there is restoration. The exile the death, the humiliation comes about for us as a result of our sins. For those who are the part of the faithful remnant, it is a discipline that's carried out for our good as we wait for what is surely coming to us, salvation and restoration in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may have noticed, as I've said, that there are actually three parallel sections here. And I've not really touched on the last one which begins in chapter 5, verse 1. Now, the reason for that is because this paints kind of a broad general picture of the, of the sufferings of the church, and it's followed up by one of the clearest passages in the entire Old Testament about the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming work. It is truly a high point in the Old Testament. It's the climax of this sort of mini-section as Micah describes exile and restoration, death and resurrection. And it is completely focused on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And one of the things that we see there from this then is that as the church waits, waits for its restoration, it can be found in no one else than the Lord Jesus Christ. 
as the church waits for our Lord's coming again, we will suffer. And the church will always languish spiritually until Christ come. And Christ did in fact come and restore his people. Ultimately, all of our hope is in him. And so think back to those rhetorical questions that Micah began with at the beginning. Is there no king? Has the counselor perished? For us, thanks be to God that our king lives, that he was raised from the dead, and that there is a counselor. The Lord Jesus Christ, after ascending to the right hand of God, poured him out upon us, that he would be living in us, even his very own spirit, that we might never again fall into the same sort of exile that the people of God fell into in that day. There is a salvation that we have that they could only dream of. And it is a sure hope for us that one day this salvation will be consummated. May God grant you the grace to live well as you wait for it. Let's pray. Father, how we do thank you for the hope that you have given to us in the scriptures. How we do thank you that you do deliver us from all of our enemies. How we thank you that that though all enemies surround us, yet we can have hope. We can entrust ourselves to you knowing what is coming for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to suffer well in this life. That you would grant us the eyes to see beyond this life. And that with that perspective, we would be able to go through this life with hope. And that we would even more than that, even more than just making it through, we would be able even to do what the apostles did in the days immediately following the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was to even rejoice in their sufferings. Grant us that grace, O Lord, that your name might be glorified in this world and all might see that you are a mighty God with whom none can compare. We ask it in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F.com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.